Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today. It's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. Victor Jang is a very active Bitcoin and blockchain, well, not Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency and blockchain entrepreneur. He's got a venture called Sapien Ventures, which is a venture capital business based in Sydney, but with um, uh, offices in America as well. Uh, and is also the founder of something called Civic Ledger, which is uh, advising and in being involved in helping governments uh, put some of their activities on the blockchain, such as parking and water rights trading. Uh, so there's a bit, plenty going on, but what's interesting about what Sapien is doing and Victor is doing is that um, uh, a lot of blockchain companies around the world are starting to come to Australia to do their initial coin offerings because uh, the regulations here, according to Victor, are now quite clear because ASIC has come out with a set of, um, a set of rules and guidelines about how to do ICOs. And uh, this has made Australia one of the more attractive destinations for ICOs in the world. Here's Victor to explain. Victor Chang, Civic Ledger um, is in, involved in advising government bodies uh, in particular on using blockchain. Are any governments in Australia actually starting to use blockchain now? Uh, absolutely. So, uh, and let me just clarify as well. Civic Ledger is not a um, consultancy company, even though it does do some consultative or, or advisory work. It is a blockchain registry and trading platform, so a software company uh, designed to get clients to um, be onboarded to a blockchain way of uh, in recording entitlements and then transferring those entitlements. Uh, so it sees itself as really a marketplace operator. Um, and to come back to your earlier question in terms of uh, Australian government clients using this, um, actually a little bit, bit of background on Civic Ledger, it was incorporated on the day when um, a group of us uh, were due to receive a purchase order from um, Civic Ledger's first customer, um, City of Melbourne, because the City of Melbourne wanted to explore implementing a what they call a parking ledger, uh, so a blockchain-based uh, parking entitlement and trading platform. So think of it as similar to an Airbnb, but for parking rights, which um, I don't know if you're aware, it's uh, actually very... Um, um, cumbersome to, to, to um, manage, especially when people would like to transfer or sell their entitlements. So going from there, um, Civic Ledger then subsequently signed up the uh, Queensland state government uh, to explore a number of pilots, paid pilots, in the areas of um, applying blockchain platforms to uh, re record the, uh, the entitlements and, and trading of uh, a number of civic entitlements, and that's really the, the, the reason why Civic Ledger is called what it is. Uh, and those entitlements include things like um, um, for, well, parking, uh, forestry, gaming, liquor, licensing, um, uh, gambling. So, so any kind of government entitlements that you can imagine for a state government, um, there are some powerful benefits and use cases uh, to, to bring it onto the blockchain where the public can inquire it 
and, and um, be certain that any uh, once recorded, um, the, the data is immutable and uh, any transfers of that entitlement will be publicly visible again in an immutable manner. Perhaps so, you could uh, perhaps you could explain it um, a bit more in detail with regard to parking, um, and back to City of Melbourne. Is City of Melbourne actually using blockchain for their parking entitlements? Uh, it's still in uh, stages of trial and, and well, pilot uh, and trial. So it's a ongoing initiative. So in the case of parking, for example, um, if a resident has a um, long term uh, parking entitlement on the street, let's say, and they go on holiday for uh, three weeks or, or, or let's say three months even, um, that entitlement is just left um, unused, right? Um, unfulfilled. So, because um, at the moment, a- par- parking entitlements are, are basically carried, as far as I understand it, with a, a, a permit sticker that goes on your car, right? Um, and so, which is difficult to transfer to the next person. If you think about it, you'd have to physically um, exchange that sticker with someone uh, the, the way it is currently done, um, and you don't even know who to transfer it to, or you give it back to the um, the, the city um, government, uh, and then they they issue it to someone else. Um, but the whole process is uh, fraught with, let's say, delays and, and sometimes inefficiencies. So the idea is that um, uh, going forward, uh, once the platform is fully up and running, um, those that have those entitlements will have a QR code type sticker uh, to stick on the car, and parking inspectors will have a little hand, well, a mobile app or a handheld device to scan that uh, QR code and be able to check instantly whether um, that QR code uh, back. Um, or, or the uh, parking entitlement tied to that QR code is actually currently valid or not. And, and you can switch that on or off uh, at a whim. Um, so that gives the ability for, let's say, someone with that sort of entitlement to transfer uh, or, or sell, or I mean trade, uh, that entitlement much more um Quickly and, and more effectively, but you don't need so you don't need blockchain to do that. I mean, you could you could use any kind of technology to record the whether the parking entitlement is is valid or not. Why does the why is the blockchain better for doing that? Uh, you're absolutely right. You don't have to use blockchain to do this. Um, th- there were a number of rationales, and I think this sort of speaks to the heart of a lot of the uh, considerations behind government um, attempts at adopting blockchain. So, um, first of all, there, there is an immutability. Um, once something has been recorded to have taken place, let's say a transfer has taken place, um, it is immutable and it is uh, distributed. No, normally, a typical blockchain setup, it is distributed um, so that anyone who has the right um, access privileges will be able to inquire upon that um, that chain of uh, transactions. So that's pretty powerful for countering potential fraud or actual fraud. There's actually, believe it or not, a fair bit of fraud in this area as well. Uh, so that's one thing. It's just difficult to do that with traditional relational databases. Secondly, it's this point of... Um, um, 
again, ease of uh, transfer of an entitlement uh, because over the blockchain, uh, clearance happens the minute you have a digital handshake. So um, a, a token that is associated with the parking entitlement um, gets transferred from party A to party B. The moment that party A and B agree that that transfer should happen for whatever consideration it happens and that's the end of it. And that token is now in someone else's uh, digital wallet or, or entitlements um, registry, if you will. And so uh, from a pure mechanical point of view, um, it is far easier to, um, let's say, scan a QR code uh, for a parked vehicle on the street and then check against the, the overall registry to see whether that um, that QR code is still a, attached to that token or not. Um, whereas through traditional means, you, you have to um, actually set up um, some counterparty measures around settlement and, and clearance and um, any time you have any transfer of title or entitlement, um, something that typically need to be um, said is settlement and clearance and potential risks and fraud associated with that. So um, blockchain, it was just felt that it was a far easier solution to do that. And thirdly, because of cost and efficiencies, uh, to do this with far lesser uh, complex system, um, it was felt that a, a government body such as the City of Melbourne can, can do this far more quickly and far more cheaply than traditional um, relational databases. So um, you mentioned at the start of the interview that some government bodies are using blockchain now. Um, what, who are they? What are they doing? Uh, so uh, another use case is... Um, um, actually, the Federal um, Department of um, Agriculture and Industry in the uh, application of um, blockchain trading for water. Now, again, this hasn't actually gone live, but um, the, the government is um, has issued a number of tenders, and, and one of the uh, ones that, um, that was issued, Civic Ledger has actually won um, in, in terms of looking at um, implementing a, a trading, an entitlements trading platform for water trading, which in Australia is a $60 billion market. So uh, there are a number of initiatives that, that the government has issued and uh, Civic Ledger has um, tender for and won uh, a lot of these uh, initiatives. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Civic Ledger is the only company in Australia that has won any government-issued tenders relating to blockchain projects uh, more than once. So um, so there's water, there's um, parking, there's uh, civic permits in the state of Queensland, and there is now um, another project around IP uh, that has recently kicked off. So one of the things that puzzles me about all this is that, um, as I understand it, with blockchain, every transaction is recorded on multiple computers around the world. It just seems to me that um, 
uh, at some point, surely, once everything starts going on blockchain, there'd be a capacity problem. I mean, every transaction being recorded on, on multiple computers, I mean, if, if every, if just say every parking entitlement in Australia went onto blockchain, uh, and every water transaction, for example, and sort of everything else went on blockchain. I mean, surely the whole system would get clogged up. So, so, so let me clarify a few things. Um, the, the blockchain is a is a standard, if you will, or a protocol. Um, it is not a single chain or a single system. It's like saying um, it, it will be. Perhaps not a bad idea to compare blockchain to something like a TCPIP. It is a protocol that allows computers around the world and networks around the world to agree to share data in a certain way, and you opt into that standard. So the blockchain is a protocol. There is not a single system um, that is the blockchain. Um, what there are are different implementations or, or uh, permutations of blockchain-based systems such as uh, Ethereum or Bitcoin or any of the uh, well, any cryptocurrency traded these days are a implementation of blockchain. But also there are other, um, let's say, hybrid, public-private, um, or even private implementations of blockchain-based systems such as uh, some banks, insurance companies, and in government institutions. So. Um, it is not necessarily that it will create more data. It's just that the way that data is recorded and, 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 and stored will be different. It will transfer from, let's say, traditional distributed, sorry, from traditional centralized computing systems like traditional relational databases to more distributed uh, uh, environments. So we're not talking about creating necessarily more data. I mean, a lot of these systems, a lot of these trading marketplaces currently have, let's say, um, traditional ways of recording that data. It's just a centralized thing. It's not immutable. It's open to tampering from within and sometimes from without as well, from externally as well. So, so which of the various government marketplaces and transaction systems do you think is is most likely to go on the blockchain first? Uh, that 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 would depend on uh, the, the the let's say the um, urgency of each of the projects and and also the political will behind some of these. So something like a water trading marketplace sitting on blockchain, uh, we think that's not going to go live very quickly because water is one of arguably one of the most strategic resources a country can have. There's so many downside implications, whereas something like parking should be, or fishing license or forestry license trading, if you will, uh, for one state, uh, that the scope and implication or potential impacted areas of that is much smaller and and relatively speaking, lower um, mission critical. So we think that those use cases would um, get to go live far quicker than something that is national and strategically important. 
You're also, um, with Sapien Ventures, you're also involved in other blockchain uh, ventures. Can you give us a sense of um, the amount of activity that you're in, involved in, I mean, with ICOs? And you mentioned, I think, uh, when, when we were talking before, uh, that a lot of uh, initial coin offerings are coming to Australia because the regulatory environment here is is better. Explain what you mean by that. Well, well perceived to be more clearer is probably the way I would phrase it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll give you some background. Um, and some of these you may know already, given that you guys are focused on this. Um, but just for the sake of um, perhaps a readership's benefit, uh, there's been a lot of changes in the ICO space, both from a market perspective, I mean, they're going ballistic, and also from a regulatory perspective, which is that broadly most uh, regulators or jurisdictions around the world are really starting to clamp down on ICOs. So this was um, uh, particularly notable when uh, the Central Bank of China, Kahito, uh, uh, one of the largest and most active blockchain and cryptocurrency trading countries, um, uh, all of a sudden, almost overnight, issued an outright ban on ICOs um, in September last year. Um, so China had a, a very large number of um, blockchain companies that were conducting legitimate business and they were in the process of or, or planning for their ICO and all of a sudden they just couldn't do it in China anymore. So uh, they started looking around for other jurisdictions, other markets where they can legally and, and compliantly conduct an ICO. And then a number of other governments followed suit uh, following the steps of China, so South Korea, Indonesia, so on and so on. They've all issued outright bans on ICO. And in the US, the situation is quite complicated as well. There is not an outright ban, but the SEC has decided to um, seriously crack down on uh, what it calls non-compliance in terms of its um, broker-dealer and securities law um, regulations around issuing securities, which it regards most ICOs to be. So, um, and, and they're also issued, uh, I think, the Hicks report or, or some report I can't remember uh, off the top of my head right now, um, which actually made the situation more complicated because it wasn't very clear from from those reports or, or policy guidance, um, how do you actually legally and compliantly conduct an ICO? Against the backdrop of all this, um, the uh, ASIC, the Australian regulator uh, for, for this um, industry, let's say, issued some policy guidelines uh, starting from late September and, and uh, a few more since which broadly brought into the uh, legislative um, compliance framework uh, of Australia um, ways to, or different categories of conducting uh, ICOs and ways to be compliant. So what is becoming, what has become clear is that in Australia, there are three types of tokens that you can conduct an initial token offering or coin offering on. Um, one is a what's uh, record, re referred to as a utility token. So uh, essentially the, the premise there is that you're issuing a product for commercial use and the product will be um, sold and, and consumed uh, during util utility 
Um, so it's no different to selling a, um, a commercial, intangible commercial product. So these don't require any specific disclosure or uh, regulatory um, further action. Um, and then the second category is what's commonly referred to as a, a security. So if you're issuing something that resembles like a share uh, in token form, then you need to uh, effectively go through the process of issuing securities with um, uh, uh, some legally obligated uh, disclosure requirements like issuing a prospectus. Uh, so, so for all intents and purposes, those tokens that are deemed uh, securities light would have to go through a process that it will be similar to an IPO. And then the third category is what's commonly referred to as um, other financial instruments. So not securities, but uh, still financial in nature. So for example, mutual funds or managed funds. Uh, so now we're, uh, we've been in contact with a number of parties that want to uh, raise uh, and distribute um, blockchain or, or even cryptocurrency focused funds um, here in Australia. And indeed, we ourselves are contemplating exploring that ourselves. So raising our funds through cryptocurrencies to focus on crypto and blockchain related ventures. So to do something like that would be, um, our understanding is uh, it will fall into the third category and where in Australia you can have what's called MISs, um, Managed Investment Schemes or even ESC CLPs, BCLPs and, and so on, fund structures that can deal with that type of financial instrument. And to do that, you have to create what's called an information memorandum and you have to decide whether or not you are targeting retail versus wholesale uh, investors. Uh, in most cases, I, I think people will be targeting wholesale investors, uh, which still allows you to raise capital from all over the world. So given those three categorizations, um, it, it has become increasingly more clear how to follow a path here in Australia to conduct an ICO in a legal and compliant manner. And we actually have a lot of partners that have a lot of expertise in doing that, including law firms and so on that, and advisors that help companies create uh, information memorandums and perspectives. So, uh, and, so do you think that the Australian authorities, in particular ASIC, are on the ball here? They're, they're really thinking this through and are coming up with um, world-leading um, regulations for ICOs? <laughs> I, I'm not sure if they uh, thought of themselves that way. I mean, it would be fantastic if that was one of the policy objectives. Maybe, maybe um, they're just the, maybe they're just not paying. Uh, maybe they're just not paying attention. What they say, in in essence, is that this phenomenon called ICOs, we want to bring it into existing Australian legislative framework. Uh, we want to regulate it with existing laws of Australia, and here are some policy guidance on how you can explore doing that. And but, but the effect of that is that all of a sudden, literally since late September, early October, so we're talking a few months ago, um, blockchain companies the world over are starting to look at Australia as increasingly, if not one of the most favorable regulatory environments regimes to, to conduct an ICO from. And it is, um, you know, some of these companies are fairly well resourced. So some of them have already raised tens of millions of dollars through private 
private equity or venture capital angel rounds or whatever. And and they just want to be able to get on with the business and and do what they want to do in a legal and compliant manner. And they don't mind paying for the legal cost, um, a corporate advisory cost, and so on. So long as once they engage um, professional service providers in a certain way, they 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 are relatively certain that they can do things uh, in a legal and compliant manner. So I think there's definitely an opportunity that Australian industry and, and industry players like ourselves have, have embraced and are actively promoting. I think it's not too often that you find Australia actually being, whether intended or not, actually at the regulatory cutting edge by global standards in terms of attracting fintech talent and, and, and fintech um, let's say fintech oriented capital um, but that is the rea- reality now we ourselves safe ventures have recently got involved with a number of ICOs um, either investing or investing and or advising um, and one of these is actually not from Australian shores it's an overseas blockchain company that found out about those regulatory changes in Australia and became attracted to to this and and at our um, we got involved in, and we've actually just recently helped them raise 23 million US dollars. Well, it sounds like it's um, it sounds like it's intended. I mean, at, at least I suppose what they're attracted to is the. I hope so. uh, it sounds like it's um, what's attractive is the certainty that at least you know what's going on in Australia. I, I think that's it, right? Um, and unlike the US or the UK, for that matter, which has sent out a lot of mixed signals once again. Um, uh, Australia is sort of sticking to its guns um, and, and making uh, legislation that is, uh, let's say, more and more favourable towards crypto c- communities in general, at least up until now. Uh, for example, they, they issued uh, the ATO and, um, and other government bodies that issued clear um, um, guidance, policy guidance on um, the, the um, the double taxation issue, uh, and also uh, the ATO more recently um, uh, issued guidance around things like how do you treat for capital gains tax on cryptocurrency uh, gains. So it has decided to uh, change the uh, categorization of cryptocurrencies from a foreign currency to a type of asset, which means that if you bought a bunch of Ether today and it went up next week by X percent, that gain is um, attributable to capital gains here in Australia, if you then liquidate back into Australia, that is. So, I mean, you know, it's helpful to have the authorities issuing more and more guidance to clarify a situation. Anytime there are uh, regulator does that. That is always welcomed by the industry, uh, and as long as they are consistent and not self-contradictory, uh, as has been the case with some other uh, regulatory regimes elsewhere in the world, then um, I think um, it's it's great, especially if it happens in a very timely manner. That's fascinating. It's great to talk to you, Victor. Thank you. Okay, thank you. That was Victor Jang, the founder of Sapien Ventures and Civic Ledger.